When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production. Available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I am Danny Lurie, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This was an incredibly eventful week around the NBA, as it often is when you have the trade deadline, and it really did crescendo with the peak being Cleveland trading in three big deals, so much of their team, almost half their roster. And I wanted to talk about all of it, not just the Cleveland stuff, but all of it with Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated, longtime friend of the show, and somebody who I think is good at putting this all in perspective. And so we, we start with Cleveland, of course, but we go into how this deadline and a little, little bit on buyouts affects the remainder of this season, including the playoffs, of course, and how it affects the 2018 offseason, including some of our ideas about where where some free agents might go and the dynamics of the market, which is something that will be a focus in this space more probably in the May-June timeline, but definitely, for those of you who know my work, something that, that I talk about a lot. So you can check that out. This podcast runs a little less than an hour. Uh, I think you will enjoy it. We we hit on a variety of topics, and here we go. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Danny. Crazy day yesterday. Uh, we should thank the Cavaliers for most of that. Thank you, Dan Gilbert and Kobe Altman and LeBron James for exercising your leverage as always so that we have something to talk about and thank you to the players who made that situation so toxic reportedly that they had to do something (laughs) and i think that's one of the most interesting parts of this is that i always try to focus on the on-court stuff because a it's easier to know everything or at least know a lot of it because it's out there versus relying on reporting and conjecture and all that kind of stuff. But in certain circumstances, in order to do a good job in terms of saying what a team should do and predicting it, you have to be aware of at bare minimum and understand at best those elements because they're relevant to what a team does. And there might not be a better example of this than what happened with this year's Cleveland Cavaliers. Yeah. And I would say that this isn't drama talk. We're not TMZ because you saw so much of the issues that they had play out on the court in lots of different ways. I mean, to me, the most obvious thing was the tension between LeBron and Isaiah. I mean, it just seemed like after months of buildup and hype through all these videos that Isaiah is filming and the big comeback hashtag he was running and you know, LeBron seeming to be into the idea of his new running mate, they just didn't have any chemistry on the court. And by the end of it, they seemed to kind of really dislike each other. I mean, there was moments where, you know, LeBron's like glaring at Isaiah Thomas when he gets beat off the dribble and, and not offering help defense. I mean, that's as obvious of a 
example of a broken relationship as you can get. Uh, you know, some people have been doing this Bruder film thing on LeBron's celebration after the Leitner game winner that he hit uh, against Minnesota. And I don't think it's a coincidence. He's kind of brushing off Isaiah Thomas uh, in that, too. So to me, there was plenty of on-court evidence that there were problems uh, in Cleveland, especially concerning Isaiah Thomas. And, and obviously, his health is holding everyone back from what they had hoped they could be. But Isaiah took it off the court, too. I mean, this guy was chirping a lot for a guy who wasn't playing very well. And that doesn't fly in any NBA locker room, whether it has LeBron James in it or not. Look around the league. How many guys who are playing as like the seventh or eighth or ninth best player on their teams are mouthing off like superstars? It just doesn't happen. It also served as a reminder to me of why I like the word chemistry being used here, because like chemistry, changing a few different elements or the chemical composition of something makes it something completely different. Isaiah Thomas was miles and miles away from being a negative off-the-court chemistry guy in Boston, but you put him in a new circumstance. The health issues were certainly a big part. Part of this. I mean, if he had been healthy this entire year, then I think a lot of this stuff wouldn't happen because the resentment would have been different. It just would have been a different circumstance. But it's all relative. It's all the fit with everything that exists. And so it is kind of bizarre that a big part of what Cleveland got in these moves was guys that will probably be happy to be there and that will fit in better with it, despite arguably in certain cases and definitely in other cases, not being more talented than the guys they're replacing. Oh, no question. I mean, the trade, the, the, the accumulation of the trades basically boils down to outgoing star power and name recognition and incoming like humble role players who will embrace not being the number one guy or the number two guy and just fitting comfortably into a team context. I mean, it's pretty insane. If you had told us, say, you know, three or four years ago, Dwayne Wade, Derek Rose would both be traded away on the same day. And they're not even like the glamour names uh, in that team's trades. And everyone's focusing on Isaiah, who at that time wasn't a huge star. But, uh, you know, even if we had rewound to last summer when everyone assumed he was healthy, the idea of trading him at the deadline, given his contract number being so low and the great value he had delivered the previous season uh, and Cleveland's needed that position would have seemed really crazy, too. So they took a completely different tact here to trade deadline. Now, here's my question, though, is how quickly can they put all of these pieces together? Because uh, they never really got those type of players, especially I'm thinking of like Jay Crowder. He never fit in. You know, it didn't work for him. And he is the type of guy who, sure, he probably wanted the ball more than he had it uh, in Cleveland. And he was used to having it quite a bit more in Boston, kind of in a more egalitarian system. But they're still going to have to ask guys like Rodney Hood and George Hill to provide offensive contributions without having big roles. And that's a tough ask for anybody. Those guys are have been used to it, I think, throughout the course of their career playing with some uh, you know, bigger name star players, whether it's, you know, Paul George for George Hill back in Indiana uh, or Gordon Hayward in Utah for Hood. But neither one of those guys is on this LeBron level of ball dominance. And I, I think it's going to be adjustment for both sides. And I kind of hope that, you know, LeBron's got a lifeline here from Kobe Altman. I mean, the Cavs invested a lot to kind of save LeBron's shot at competing for a title this season. I hope he sort of refocuses and rethinks uh, some things in, in terms of his team approach, because there were so many guys in that roster who were underperforming. And I don't think we can let LeBron off the hook for that. Especially not because LeBron has spent his entire career being a tone setter. 
And there's a reason why I've moved him down a lot. He's, I think I had him fourth in the MVP for the last last month is because the tone that he is set in Cleveland this year has been very lax. And I mean, the defensive part of it, yeah, sure, Isaiah Thomas and Kevin Love are not good defenders and, and sure want to point, to point fingers to that. But there's no accountability for anybody because if LeBron James is your best player and he's just coasting out there for most of the games, why are those guys supposed to be busting their asses? Because you have to build it from the top down in certain ways because other than arguably... Harden and Houston because that's a way more complicated circumstance. Teams with best players who are inconsistent in terms of their effort generally have that stuff run all the way down the roster. Yeah, and I mean it's also tough when you don't have the built up, you know, years of chemistry to understand what coasting LeBron looks like, right? You know, or understanding that from the outside looking in, if you're one of these new players who joined the the Cavaliers this season, you're probably thinking LeBron's going to carry us every single night. I've seen him carry his teams for a, more than a decade. I've been on the losing side of LeBron carrying his team night in and night out. But once you're living it, you realize that at this stage of his career, it's not an 82 game experience for LeBron in terms of playing in sixth gear and not even close. Right. And so learning how to oscillate your own role, when to step up, when to step back, just you know, knowing how to ride that wave is tricky. Not everybody could do it. And we saw a number of players kind of stumble in that regard uh, this season. And I think, you know, a few of them were miscast, you know, former stars, you know, trying to, you know, make the transition to role players. I mean, in some cases like Rose and Wade, I just didn't think that was uh, maybe ever going to work. Uh, but by and large, I mean, how many guys can you really say on the Cavaliers this season that LeBron had like pulled the most out of them or, or helped them reach their full potential? Uh, and not very many and certainly fewer than previous seasons. So like I said, hopefully LeBron uses this as sort of like a, a refresh, you know, not only in terms of structurally how is their team going to work and and maybe how it matches up with the east best or golden state's best which i think it does match up better now but uh also his own role in terms of facilitating everyone else's happiness one of the most interesting parts of this and i i've wrote about this a little bit for the Athletic Cleveland and have a piece for the Athletic Bay Area, kind of on the two different principles, one on how they face the Warriors and then the Cleveland piece on just this broader scope thing, is that I think Cleveland got substantially better on paper defending guards and point guards in particular. I mean, George Hill, when he's healthy, has done a wonderful job of that in his career. He's longer than most point guards. He moves pretty well when his toe isn't killing him. And they didn't really have that guy on this roster. And while Kyrie had capability, he had his own flaws. And the biggest change there is that Amon Shumpert has just become a shell of what he was in the early finals runs. So they got better there. And I think that's going to be broadly useful because the best teams in the league are guard dominant. I mean, the Celtics have Kyrie, the Warriors have Steph Curry, and the Rockets are a little bit different because of because of the way they do it and even the Raptors are offensively guard dominant so that'll work the challenge for them specifically against the Warriors but maybe against the Rockets too is that I think they got materially worse defending wings because Jay Crowder even though he was miscast in certain elements especially offensively he solved a big problem they had last year which was how do you defend another team's wing without using LeBron James so LeBron James can do what he's so good at because when they had Harrison Barnes or when they had all these other guys or with Draymond or whatever they could put LeBron on a lesser threat and have him freelance, have him be a help defender. And so Crowder solved that problem that was just, that killed them in the 2017 finals. And I understand why they went, needed to go in another direction or whatever like that. But 
there also weren't other players available to fill that role. So they're basically going to either have to paper over it or just say, we're going to have to live with that. And when you have a talent deficit, that's going to be very, very hard. Yeah. So, I mean, a couple of things. First of all, uh, I think that they upgraded in general just because they didn't have a go-to five-man lineup that I loved against Golden State. And we saw it on Christmas. I mean, obviously, Isaiah wasn't back yet, but like, who are you trying to close with? Who's going to play your most important minutes? Like, even just finding a collection of five guys who work together, who you could credibly throw out there, was very difficult. You know, I mean, it just got really to be slim pickings in part because of the Shumpert thing that you mentioned, uh, but also, you know, J.R. Smith's uh, inconsistency. You know, Wade, I, that's a really big ask for him at this stage of his career, and I thought they were smart to move on from him and, and not kind of put him into that situation. And once it became clear that Isaiah wasn't going to be part of your best five once he came back, they had to make these radical changes, like you're mentioning, and especially the George Hill piece. Um, that's a big one. And I also think when you're constructing their best five lineups now, Hood is probably in that best five, basically, you know, no matter what, when you're trying to match up with Golden State. It's not an ideal situation because, you know, he's probably going to be overmatched at the three, like you're mentioning, uh, against a guy like Kevin Durant. But w- when you're saying which five guys do you trust in the finals, I think both Hill and Hood are in that mix. And, and that's why you kind of you know, do this trade deadline thing. But in terms of the Crowder piece, I thought Crowder made a lot more sense in that three, uh, in a defensive three role uh, on paper coming into the season. I thought he was going to live up to it. But frankly, I thought Kevin Durant, when their head to head matchups, was getting basically anything he wanted against Crowder. Like, and, and you could say that for a lot of people. Uh, and I think KD in particular has relished those matchups against Cleveland this year as he's trying to get in that conversation of moving past LeBron on the best players list. But Crowder, to me, wasn't that solution. Now, taking him away, I think that makes it more dire. I think it probably puts more responsibility on LeBron's shoulders to guard Kevin Durant. I think that's a tough ask. And it probably puts Cleveland in situations where they're playing multiple bigs more than we thought they would at the beginning of the season just because they're a little bit you know, shallow at that wing spot. So either J.R. Smith like turns his life around, gets it together, uh, and they they go super you know, interchangeable with both Smith uh, and Hood on, on the court and try to do it that way, or it means you're playing your two bigs plus LeBron at the three more often. Either one of those, I think, is going to struggle in pure matchups against Golden State, uh, but I think that those lineups are going to be good enough to get them uh, over the hump against teams like Boston and Toronto who still don't have that answer for LeBron defensively. Along those lines, I think that Larry Nance helps the Cavs a lot in the Eastern Conference playoffs because he's not a dominant defender, but he works hard and he's and he's athletically capable. So against imperfect players, I think he can do a good enough job. It's just that once you get to the concentration of talent that teams like the Warriors and the Rockets have, he'll have less utility. There's also the challenge that I don't think you can really, against the best teams, you can't really play him with Tristan Thompson. But Tristan Thompson hasn't been so good that you're sitting there going, oh, well, we need to think about our roster in terms of who can play with him. That's not the way this works. And Nance as a small ball five is fascinating. I haven't ever really seen that kind of rim protection from him. He's one of those guys who's a better jumper than he is shot changer, shot blocker, which those guys have existed forever. It's not it's not a damning criticism of him in any way, but he's another option. And I think that's the, as you were getting to with the, the final five type of idea, 
the thing that I like the most about this from Cleveland's perspective was that there's a very real chance that one or more of these players just won't work, that the same problems in terms of fit that existed with the additions they made over the summer will happen with these guys. But at least they have... It's it's like you're throwing a bunch of spaghetti at the wall and hoping some of it sticks. It's better if you're throwing more of it than if you're throwing less of it, I'm assuming. I've, I've never actually challenged myself with that. And so that idea is actually really important for Cleveland because they they were pretty confident that what they had wasn't working. So you might as well try a bunch of things and then hope like, okay, maybe if two of these guys work, then you have those two guys, LeBron, Kevin Love, presumably, and somebody else. I'm sure they're hoping it's JR, could be Tristan, whoever else it is. Yeah, and I think the other thing to mention uh, on top of your spaghetti analogy here is that a lot of these guys have injury issues or uh, injury uh, issues in their past that could easily flare up and, and screw this thing up. And I think we tend to focus on LeBron's like 2016 uh, postseason performance for obvious reasons. I mean, it's going to be what everyone remembers, I think, as the signature moment of his career that run and, and coming back and all that. But this season, to me, it could shape up a little bit like 2015 when all of his teammates were just dropping like flies and LeBron had to do it all uh, by himself during the playoffs. I mean, you remember it was Love, it was Kyrie. It was just like right down the list of all these guys getting injured. When we're talking about how well George Hill, Rodney Hood, and Larry Nance fit into what they're trying to do, we're talking about that theoretically. I mean, the fact is these guys have all missed significant time in recent years. All three of those guys, plus Love is out currently, plus Thompson's been dealing with some health issues that have kind of held him back too. That's a huge chunk of their playable rotation. And can we count on all of those guys to be healthy throughout the entire playoffs? I really don't think so. So again, you're throwing the the pasta against the wall and hoping some sticks from a fit standpoint, but you're doing the exact same thing from a health standpoint. And I think the the real deciding factor here will be is LeBron James's sixth gear is playoff LeBron James in 2018 as singularly dominant over the competition in the Eastern Conference uh, just as he was in 2015 because it didn't matter about all those injuries in 2015 LeBron carried the day uh, you know he was Atlas with the world on his back and it was fine can he still do that when he's locked in on sixth gear uh, through three playoff series uh, if guys are going down That's, to me, the defining question of the Eastern Conference playoffs. To put a little bit of a finer point on it, George Hill has only played more than 50 games once in the last three seasons. That was his last year in Indiana. Rodney Hood has only played more than 60 games once in his NBA career, and that was his second year when he was on the Jazz, and that was the year he started started the whole year, which he did mostly last year. Last year, got a little bit of bench time, and then he's been there this year. And both of those guys have just kind of, they have a propensity for just having stuff wrong. And a good example of that is both those guys, the the Jazz were hopeful they were going to be impactful in a series against the Warriors last year because they played together on the Jazz against the Warriors. George Hill only played in one game. He had a big toe issue, played 28 minutes in game one, never played in the rest of the series. Hood was all right in the first three games, had some nice moments, but really wasn't that impactful. And then sprained his knee in game four. And then, you know, he would have missed, he would have missed probably for a little bit of time, but they got knocked out in that game. So it didn't end up mattering. So you have all of that that's there. And so one of the ways that I frame this trade is that the, these series of trades 
is that they exchanged one sort of injury risk for another. So the injury risk they got is the if healthy one, which is like, hey, if these guys can play, they'll be a good fit, but they have to actually be on the court. Whereas the health risk they had before this trade was, well, what if Isaiah is never Isaiah? What if Jay Crowder just isn't right this year? And it's not to say that one of those is any better than the other, but I generally, beyond the personality problems, which largely made that untenable, I broadly prefer the Isaiah Crowder camp of that because you know their capability and you know that if they get right, you have a better sense of trust of what they're going to be rather than saying like, oh, well, maybe George Hill is just going to play two games in this series and then be out. Yeah, I mean, I think if we had seen like even 80% of Isaiah or like, you know, consistent flashes of like close to 100% Isaiah he would have been happier. LeBron would have liked him more, and they probably don't go through this crazy trade line, uh, trade deadline in the same way that they did, right? They probably would have identified potentially other higher priorities, and maybe that winds up being a guy like DeAndre Jordan. I think Kobe Altman reached the conclusion, and LeBron James probably reached the same conclusion that the ship had sailed, right? It's gone. Like there, the hope that we could bank on Isaiah and Crowder to the level that we're going to need them to play with that that constitution, but it just wasn't going to happen, given that they only have you know two months until the playoffs, and that's why you see this move. And you know, from Kobe Altman, I mean, I, I give that guy credit. I liked the original trade that he got in, in, in terms of the terms and the way that he put it together for Kyrie Irving. It was a really tough spot to be in his logic in terms of what he was trying to target was good Isaiah was the best available point guard at that time uh, in my eyes so it was smart and then to just cut your losses six months later to admit that your once logical decision panned out in basically the worst possible way and to you know zig the completely other direction that is not easy and a lot of NBA GMs and NBA front offices and ownership groups have trouble admitting mistakes especially when you're young you know because you don't want to have your mistake define you early in your career so for Kobe to kind of you know admit all of it uh take take the temperature of the team see what's happening on the court and undo a lot of what he had done and try something else I think was courageous uh it was bold Uh, it deserves credit and you're you're making a great point though it still might not work you know it still might not be good enough but he should have done it and I think he did the right thing here at the deadline Two more quick things on Cleveland, and then we can move on to other topics because there's a lot that I think is interesting here. So one is, I, I posed this on Twitter on Thursday, and I just I don't have an answer. I just find it an interesting question of how would this look if Kevin Love hadn't gotten hurt? I think it would be different, but I don't exactly know how. Yeah, I'm not totally sure it would have been hugely different because I think the urgency factor was kind of already there, and Isaiah really did seem to be like campaigning his way out of town. Do you think and, they would have considered trading Love? That's the one thing I think might have been different. Oh, I see. Yeah. Well, you you could have potentially gone uh, more dramatic, yeah, and you could have thrown him out there. I don't know. I think Love has played well enough to me, and especially when Cleveland's been playing at its best, to me, Love has been a huge part of that. So when you're looking at, like, who are the guys that you can actually count on, we need to have some people in that best five lineup against the Warriors in the finals that have some level of like legitimate postseason experience. You know, it's going to be a big ass to count on Rodney Hood or Jordan Clarkson or Larry Nance in some of those moments, right? You want to have some guys who have been through it before. And certainly if you're a coach like Ty Lue, you really want that. Uh, I'm not sure we would have seen Love moved. I think he had played well enough this season. And I know there was that big blow up about, oh, he's sick. So he checks himself out of the game. I mean, to me, that was unfair to him. And it probably got overplayed a little bit um, at the time just because everything was getting overplayed in Cleveland for like, you know, six weeks straight there. 
The last thing, which I think is maybe the most striking, and I didn't really think about this until I started kind of piecing together how I think the Lakers trade happened, is the idea that Isaiah Thomas, in many ways, was more salary filler in that trade rather than an asset. Because what it seems like is Cleveland valued Clarkson maybe a little bit more than other teams did. I still hate his contract, and there's still still some issues with that. But it seems more to me like Fry and, and Thomas, while he was a value for the Lakers, it wasn't really producing that much value that was in the trade, that really what Cleveland wanted was Larry Nance and Clarkson, sure, they could get him back. I don't think, and so that is also striking when you have a guy who was not in the winning the MVP conversation necessarily last year, but in the conversation for being on the ballot and all NBA and all that kind of stuff, effectively being a throw in or a get out of town guy in a debt in a trade at that deadline is remarkable. Yeah, I mean, I, the way I put it in my winners and losers column is just. It, w- it should be humbling for him on a lot of levels because number one, like you're mentioning, like there was not a star coming back for him, right? This is not the Kyrie trade where you could say, hey, it's star for star or kind of pitch it that way. If, if you're a player who feels like he's a star and like an MVP type candidate like Isaiah surely does. So you're looking at why are we giving up a pick to get these two young unproven guys who have never done anything in the league back? Like what's up with that? Two, there's this whole question of he's getting traded to a lottery team that doesn't even really want to build the show around him. And they'd rather just try to run out Lonzo Ballard and get him his reps. So that's going to be humbling. Three, he's been through broken situations before in his career, Sacramento, Phoenix, and he really didn't like them. He was finally presented with the opportunity to play uh, on a winning team in Boston and then play on a team with championship aspirations in Cleveland. And it didn't work out at all for him. And he bears some level of responsibility, as does his injury. I think that should be humbling. But then finally, the most humbling thing of all is, do the, the Lakers even care enough to give him a real shot here down the stretch to try to keep him? Or is he completely about that, you know, opening up the max level slots and, and moving forward without him in the future? If a team like the Lakers, who consistently has, you know, shown preference for sort of like star power, name recognition over actual production here in the last couple of years, uh, and granted, that might not be what Magic and Palinka are thinking. They may have a more substantive approach, but that was sort of the Lakers' approach here for a couple of years. If they're not interested in Isaiah, uh, if they've got him on their own roster, not even if they have to go chase him somewhere else, But if they're not interested in keeping him and paying him the type of money Isaiah was hoping to get 12 months ago or even a fraction of it, who will? (laughs) Like, what's the fit? I mean, where where is Isaiah going to land in July and how many teams are going to be lining up to take on everything that he represents health wise? And now, you know, these character questions that have come up here, I think, over the last month or if you don't want to call it character, maybe ego or role or fit or, or whatever else. How many teams want to buy into that right now? It's a it's a fascinating question. And to me, this free fall drop of Isaiah over the last nine months is the single biggest surprise in the entire NBA, including Markel Fultz, including every single other story you'd want to put out there as a surprise. It's truly shocking to think he could go from a guy who's envisioning being uh, the, the long-term face of the Celtics on a max contract to a guy who is going to really struggle, I think, to find anyone interested in his services potentially come July. What's more, Thomas doesn't have a clerica case. If I were his agent, I'd be telling him that doing a one-year make good somewhere, you know, like, hey, you get an opportunity. Let's say I'm just throwing a name out of the hat because they just traded their point guard. Orlando. Like, let's say Orlando. Hey, maybe you can fix their offense and do all that kind of stuff. I don't think it's a guarantee that that would rehabilitate his value either. Like, you're just sitting there going, do you want to take that kind of a risk? And maybe he does. That's a, that's a player's personal choice to do. But it's not one of these things where he can say, oh, well, this is all going to wash off me 
because it, you know, it's changed the way that he has been perceived around the league. And also the league has changed as well. Teams have become more judicious. And also he's becoming a free agent at exactly the wrong time because very few teams are going to have flexibility. So his decision this summer is going to be incredibly complicated. It could be simplified by the right situation being the most interested. But as we have seen with the Lakers in the recent past, sometimes the teams that offer you the most money are not necessarily the right situation. Yeah, no, great point. And the timing is going to be tough. The one thing I'd like to say about Isaiah, just to close the Isaiah piece, is this. I think all of what we're talking about right now is going to sink in for him at some point. And I'm not surprised at all that he feel probably feels a little bit disoriented by the way the last two years have gone. I mean, you have a dream season, then you have a nightmare season. You've got personal tragedy mixed in. You know, the, his personal narrative, like his, his interior, interior monologue has changed direction here so sharply multiple times in the last 24 months that that would have to be disorienting for everyone. But I really wonder if, you know, five years from now, three to five years from now, if if he's not in this position where he's looking back on his Cleveland tenure as a totally missed opportunity and, you know, potentially the best chance he was ever going to have to really leave a basketball legacy and if he would do anything differently in terms of how he approached the season, how he approached his relationship with LeBron, maybe, you know, just subjugate a little bit more, kiss the ring a little bit more. I mean, I think to me, those are open questions because uh, you can't imagine that kind of free fall, you know, being able to process it as it's really happening, you know, in full. And then once, you know, you, you bottom out and wherever that might be, uh, we don't know, know yet. I, you know, reality is going to hit him pretty hard. You know, frankly, some of this reminds me a little bit of the Brandon Roy situation, just because I saw that up close in Portland. I mean, he went from being a top two or three, two guard in the league, you know, all NBA level player to a franchise icon to basically unplayable in a very short period of time. And he really struggled with it mentally. And I hope for Isaiah's case that he can get his body back right. So that's not how his story ends, too. But that's the clearest uh, comparison that I can draw. And, you know, watching B-Roy jog around with the Timberwolves was like as depressing as it gets, you know, at least for someone who was in Portland you know, for his heyday. And I'm worried that if Isaiah hasn't reached that level with the Lakers here, you know, it could come with one of these teams that you're mentioning, uh, you know, next season. And and that could be really hard to watch. I think that's a great point. And and it is something worth acknowledging. The other thing I'll mention there is I wonder, in hindsight, how we'll feel about coming back when it was so clear that he wasn't 100 percent. And the idea of working your way into shape, in certain cases, works really well. But I think in this one, because of how they did it and everything else, I think that actually created some of the problems because Isaiah was playing like he was 100 percent when he clearly was not. And there is no right answer, and it changes based on the person in the situation. But that's another another element that I think we'll look back on differently than like as, as a missed opportunity because no equity had already been built. Absolutely, 100%. I mean, he's going to have regrets on whether he should have played through the injury in Boston. And I think he's going to have second thoughts about how he handled his recovery in Cleveland. But he didn't really have much of a choice, right? Like they, he did what he had to do the second time, and you know it, it really did not work out for him. And that's why I don't think we should scapegoat all of Cleveland's issues to him. I right. mean, that would not be fair. Absolutely. I want to move on to there are kind of two other big boxes that I think were interesting. It was originally going to be the focus, but the Cleveland stuff, of course, I had to talk about it. Is how the deadline largely affected the rest of this season, and then how it set up the 2018 summer of 2018 off season. And so we'll start with the season itself. I think something that was so striking outside of Cleveland, and then to a lesser extent, the Celtics getting Greg Monroe, though that's a little bit different, is how little was done in like the real, even like the fringe championship tier outside of Cleveland. Houston did nothing. They might get Joe Johnson as a buyout guy. 
Raptors cleared a little bit of money. They'll probably get a buyout guy, but their rotation's basically set. Celtics got Monroe. Wolves did nothing. Spurs did nothing. Thunder did nothing. So I understand that, especially because of how impacted those teams are. But it was fascinating to see the Warriors basically stand pat and everybody else stand pat due to structural concerns and due to everybody else just holding on to their stuff. Yeah, and some of those teams maybe being in, in tough positions where what do they have to trade? You know, like Oklahoma City comes to mind. You know, that, that might be a unique situation where they might have wanted to to add, but maybe felt like they couldn't. That's why I think Golden State has to exit this trade deadline as one of the bigger winners, you know, or, or by default, you know, process of elimination because Cleveland closed the gap with Golden State to me, but not to a crazy degree, not to anything that should really make the Warriors sweat, assuming that the Warriors can get back to really playing like they were during last year's playoffs, you know, on that full tilt type of level. And I think they can still do that. In terms of the Western Conference, I mean, Houston, they were already scary for Golden State. I mean, you know, not terrifying, but that's a really, really good team. Had they made some kind of an impact addition here, really, you know, given Mike D'Antoni another weapon, if you're Golden State, then you might be scrambling a little bit. And that didn't happen. So uh, I think the the takeaway, you know, there's probably a couple of interpretations you could have from the, the quiet trade deadline. One, people are going to be aggressive in the buyouts and we could have a really good buyout market. Two, none of these second tier teams were totally convinced that this was their year uh, versus maybe taking a you know two to three year approach in terms of toppling either Golden State or Cleveland in their respective conferences. And then three, you know, tricky money situations kind of hamstrung a lot of these teams that are really good because, you know, to be on that level, you have to spend a lot of money to kind of keep up and Basically, uh, most of those teams that we've mentioned, uh, you know, weren't in a position where they could like, you know, really go like Dan Gilbert on it and take on, you know, a bunch of future money that's looking questionable. I mean, none of those teams, I think, viewed that as a as a priority, you know, sacrificing the long term to really make this killer short term run. That's especially true for me of a team like the Raptors, just because they didn't, there wasn't much they really could do, unless you're going to argue they should have paid the tax for this team. But that's a discussion that's basically already happened. And it was also, I think, another big factor in this is that a lot of the teams in that group that I listed, and especially the Celtics and the Wolves and the Thunder, turned over a lot of their team over the summer. And so when you have that sort of a circumstance, especially in Minnesota and Boston's case, where their key players are under contract for, for a little while longer, you go, well, why should it be this year? The Warriors are going to be older. I would expect the Warriors, if this, assuming health is equal, which you never can, that they'll be worse next year. So like if you're Minnesota, you go, well, why, why are we why are we selling out for this year when we can do it for next year and they're dealing with their own financial stuff? So I think that was a part of it as well, especially for Boston. I mean, they don't even know what this team looks like with Gordon Hayward. So they can play the long game. They can try to own the future, as it were. And, yeah. and one other thing fine. to build on that, too, would be like for Houston and San Antonio. I mean, to me, I consider those two teams still players for LeBron, right? I mean, I think that they should be in the conversation. I think there was a, a report maybe from Chris Haynes that he was saying he might meet with them this summer. And I think that's got to factor into your calculus, too, because you've already got, you know, some really hefty contracts on the books and it's going to take some real gymnastics to make a LeBron James acquisition work. If you're one of those teams taking on more money or, you know, taking on money that's future money, if you're one of those uh, types of teams might not be uh, a priority for that reason, too. I mean, it could be influenced by this idea of like, hey, if we're one of four teams that LeBron's going to consider, let's not like back ourselves all the way into a corner even more than we already might be. 
Houston in particular, I mean, Clint Capella is a pending restricted free agent. We don't know what his market's going to be. I think there's more variability with him than almost anybody else who's good. Like, there's a lot of variability with bad players because it's just, do you find a team like Mozgov that overvalues you? There's more, there's always more volatility there. But I mean, with Clint Capella, it could go in a variety of ways. And so I understand why they would want to be patient with that and why they could be optimistic that, you know, it, it can go around. And with LeBron, this can kind of work as a transition between the two pieces is... Chris Paul should serve as a, as an innovator in terms of this because the best way for LeBron James, if he wants to leave Cleveland, to end up on a team that can compete in the 2018-19 season is to opt into his contract and end up somewhere. Because as a free agent, as, as good as the Lakers could be if they could add him and Paul George, we know how those sorts of processes are. It usually takes a little while, the adjustment period, you have to figure out the support talent, all that kind of stuff, especially with their pretty new front office. So it would be more fitting into an established place. I don't know if that's what LeBron wants, but if one of the things that he prioritizes is being competitive, those options, and I think that's how Houston and how San Antonio are on the table rather than as a free agent destination. And that's a decision that he will have information on, obviously, because the league doesn't enforce most of the tampering rules that it has, but it's a decision that he's going to have to make and it totally changes the options that are available to him. I could not agree with you more and i think probably in your niche of the world where you're kind of like running this nba salary cap talk you guys gave i I believe you did gave chris paul his credit for how unique and innovative and just outside the box and different and in some cases risky the way he played last summer was in terms of you know passing on what could have been an awful lot of money for your five-year contract i mean that was very very bold and unique But it it paid off for him really well in terms of how Houston's played this season and in terms of how they were able to keep a really good rotation intact around him. And I agree. I think LeBron should do the same thing. It would be fantastic. Now, that's tough because it's not maximizing his absolute, you know, peak, you know, salary ability. It is a risk in that. You know, this one or these one year, two year type contracts he's been signing for a few years make less and less sense the older you get. And LeBron, I don't think he's, you know, his influence isn't like a waning, but I do think that, like we mentioned before, the consistency of being able to be in like six gear every single night is it's not quite there like it was a few years ago. These are things you should consider if you're him and trying to make, you know, the next big financial move of your career, which is going to come this summer. But in terms of if his number one goal, if he's serious, his number one goal is to win. A title. That's exactly what he should do. And frankly, I think he should follow Chris Paul to Houston or find a way to make it so that he can get to San Antonio. And and obviously there would there need to be some work done on their part, given some of the contracts they handed out last summer. But uh, those are the destinations that make sense to me. Maybe you could throw Philadelphia in there if you want to be uh, you know outside the box thinker. But I don't think there's a very long list of those types of teams that make sense for the opt in route. And the teams that do make sense, though, really get your blood going like it really starts to get a lot more exciting than the idea of running this Cavaliers team back with, you know, Rodney Hood on a, on a kind of a discounted deal and still trying to make it work. Maybe you cash in Kevin Love over the summer for somebody else. I mean, to me, opting in and finding a spot in Houston. Now, that is a, uh, not only a team I want to see, but a series I absolutely want to see between them and Golden State next year. One big challenge, and this really does tie things around a little bit to where we started this, is that the opt-in destinations, to me, that's teams like San Antonio, like Houston, potentially, and, and there, there are a few others as well. I, I wrote a piece about how Golden State could do it, but they absolutely will not. That doesn't make any sense for them. The problem <laughs> is 
none of those teams really have the right support pieces for LeBron James. I mean, I, from a personality standpoint, there's an outside shot that Harden, Paul, and LeBron works. From a basketball perspective, that's the biggest sacrifice in terms of playmaking and all that kind of stuff of LeBron's career. Either that or it's the biggest sacrifice of Harden's career. We don't really know. But the same thing is true with the Spurs. Kawhi likes having the ball in his hands. LaMarcus likes having the ball in his hands. You know, like all that kind of stuff. And I am... It's amazing how LeBron, partially because he's been such a central figure the entire time I've covered the league, how I've used him as a prism to understand the league better. Early on, that was, you know, like with free agency. In 2010, I had to change the way that I, I thought about free agency because of LeBron James. And that helped in 20, helped set up 2014. Now it's the idea of like, okay, how are you going to be happy? How are you going to create this circumstance? And what part of the reason that matters as a prediction standpoint, and this goes back to Durant to the Warriors too, is because players consider that when they're making their decisions. Oh, totally. And I think you're mentioning some of the personality conflicts that could erupt or, you know, the the usage conflicts that could erupt in those other spots. And I think that's why, you know, my colleague Lee Jenkins would always, uh, you know, bang the drum of like, hey, don't count Cleveland out, right? Because he is definitely going to be the king there. And this trade deadline proved that again. I mean, Kobe Altman and Dan Gilbert bent over backwards, spent tons of money, moved heaven and earth to give LeBron exactly what he would want in the short term. And they've done that, you know, time and time again here in recent years. And, you know, let's say they get inklings that he's going to stay. Don't you think that they would be willing to trade uh, that Nets pick, even if it landed in the top three, to to get LeBron some real help, just like they traded Andrew Wiggins to get him Kevin Love in the first place? I have no doubt about that. You know, we could salivate all we want over, uh, you know, Doncic or whoever else might be, you know, drafted in that spot. But if you're Cleveland and LeBron is on board, uh, that guy's out the door. I mean, that, that's just been the track record of how they've done things. So the simplest solution for LeBron is to kind of you know stay in Cleveland, uh, you know, keep relevant by updating the cast around him and just hope you get the right mix that gives you a chance to compete for a title. I guess I'm just hoping for something bigger and something different. And, you know, that could be Houston. It might not work. That could be San Antonio. Uh, there could be difficulties there. But I think I'm ready for something else. We just don't know if LeBron is. We really don't. And I'm really excited to see where it goes and the potential of a Celtics Cavs series as being clarifying. There, there are certainly echoes of the OKC Warriors Western Conference Finals where it was like kind of the idea of, are we good enough? And it, it's weird to me that how that led to Durant because Durant got he didn't get the definitive answer. He probably, you know, that that maybe not. He just went, hey, screw it. I'm gonna. That's a better opportunity anyway. But with LeBron, the reason that's relevant is let's say Gordon Hayward doesn't play in that series, and even if he does, he's not gonna be 100. percent That's not. It's not realistic knowing what we know right now to assume that if Cleveland can't get past this version of Boston, especially with all the other stuff that's going on, uh, it's hard for me to imagine. LeBron saying, oh, well, we, we're going to make this work, especially considering the Celtics are getting a pick from either the Kings or the Lakers that's going to be similarly good, if not better than the Nets pick. And they have all these young dudes that they can trade and they have a general manager who's done a nice job, done a better job than I thought he had done to on, on a lot of these moves. And so that series, you know, and, and it is partially about competing versus winning. Like, I think those are two very different things. But I hope we get it, if only for that reason, because it will it will be there, and you'll be you'll be knowing that LeBron's thinking about it that way because that's what he does. And well, he, and Danny, isn't there also a pretty direct comparison you could make between you know a potential Cavs Celtics 
you know, 2018 uh, Eastern Conference Finals and the 2010 Conference Semifinals between the Cavaliers and the Celtics, where Absolutely. that was the impetus for him to leave, right? It's like, mm-hmm. I'm not going to be able to get over this big three by myself. I'm out. And if he were to lose to Kyrie in the Conference Finals, I would expect a similarly dramatic action. I mean, that would be a very personal, very tough defeat for LeBron to take after Kyrie left him over the summer, don't you think? Oh man, I can't even I can't even imagine. And also the way that would ha- in terms of him thinking about the front office because the people making the decisions and signing the checks in Cleveland are the same people who traded Kyrie, which it sounds like LeBron didn't support. So if you're going, hey, I want to stay here, but they're still going to make their decisions, then that would make him uncomfortable too. Yeah, it's it's truly fascinating. And I the other part of so to the last kind of thing I want to talk with you about a little bit the 2018 offseason, not necessarily as involving LeBron, is how these teams kind of various teams set themselves up for different challenges. So the restricted market is probably going to be extremely limited, and so that's why I found the bet that Cleveland made by getting Rodney Hood. Though I don't think they did that with restricted free agency as the primary motivation. Phoenix with Alfred Payton. As and to a lesser extent, Dallas with McDermott, I, his situation is a little bit more nuanced. But what they did with those guys is basically say, "Well, we don't exactly know if the, if these guys are going to get paid or not, but we might as well have their rights because if they end up getting too much money, we can let them go. But there really isn't going to be much of a market for them. So I think that's a really good bet." that they made. We'll see if it works out. But I'm very intrigued by those teams that did that, whereas other players like Marcus Smart, which again is a good bet by Boston, Aaron Gordon, Nurkic, like those kind of guys all staying put puts those teams in a different place as well. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, from the ones that you listed, I think Peyton is probably the most interesting of well i guess hood's the most important right because the stakes are the highest right but if if you can get peyton for a second round pick and then you're able to keep him on like a you know a bottom dollar contract this summer because no one's really interested in chasing him as a restricted free agent the expectations are already off because he's not the supposed savior like he was supposed to be in orlando and they clung to that for years too long and you could argue it cost him oladipo and i mean they really sunk a lot of draft assets into getting him into the first place that was really tough all that pressure is gone now in Phoenix, and they already know who their best player is going to be you know, in the years going forward. So you know, Peyton it can be recast pretty much however you want him to be. And if you're recasting him on an affordable contract, sure, go for it. Why not? And for the Suns, they've made a lot of you know questionable decisions here over the last three, four, five years. Uh, but that was one where I think pretty much everyone can kind of get behind for for not only the reasons that you're mentioning, but just the idea of like, why not? You know, that that's a logical flyer to me. And at the same point, for Orlando's perspective, there would have been a lot of pressure on them if they had kept him to keep him. Because like, let's say let's say you've made the decision that because of all that they've thrown into him, that you don't want him as like your backup point guard. Let's say they draft somebody this year or sign somebody through the mid-level exception or whatever. Then that situation is much stickier with him. And even if let's say, oh, you can get him at a reasonable contract and then you can trade him. Yeah, good luck with that. I mean, that's that's really hard. <laughs> yeah. You you can't trade a guy until December. You know he would be really unhappy there. You're putting guys back in the same situation. So I get it from Orlando's perspective because there is, and, and this is the same thing with Cleveland, there is this difference between, as much as I love like NBA 2K and doing that, between a video game interpretation of running an NBA team and a real life one because these are human beings and creating assets out of human beings is a very complicated thing and there's a reason why most teams don't do it. And so I, I get it from that perspective. And 
The other thing that's truly remarkable that we came away from this deadline not knowing is how much future money it takes to get off a first-round pick. We just don't know. It is going to be an important factor this summer just because there are going to be teams that want to get out of money. Some it's going to be for tax purposes like Portland. For others, it's going to be to clear cap space like maybe the Lakers, though clearing Clarkson, maybe they don't have to do it in the same way. And right now, if you were to like ask me, and remember, this is my job. How Okay, how much future money does it take if you're not sending back a player of quality in return to take on a first round pick? I would give you a guess, but I don't know. And if that's me, and that's my job, and the GMs, because it's all these like isolated bubbles that have their own valuations, it's going to be super awkward. And as strange as that is, all of those negotiations are going to happen in like three days. And so this calibration is going to basically happen on the fly. Let me ask you a question on this subject. Do you think part of the reason why we don't know that is because so many of the bad dollar contracts were signed in 2016? Once the cycle starts over in July, that's one fewer year you've got to worry about. And the thinking from everyone was just like, it's going to be a lot easier and, and more liquid once those contracts are, you know, halfway, you know, two years through of a four year deal or two years through of a three-year deal that that will kind of break things up and, and some of this current logjam will just naturally release uh, basically come July 1. Do you think that's part of it? Yes. I think the sticker shock is certainly there, teams, because you even though it's, we're two-thirds of the way basically through the season, there is that sticker shock of like, oh my god, we're paying this guy for this year and two more years or something like that. Like that, It feels like a lot more than it is, especially for some of these teams where the rest of this season is irrelevant. You know, like Chicago is probably a good example of this with Omar Ashik, you know. I only evaluated that trade in terms of the future money, not the present money, because it didn't matter. I think that's a big part of it. The other thing, and the best example of this is the Atlanta Hawks last year, is that the valuation of the 2018-19 space changes as soon as the offseason starts. Because at that point, you know what your money is worth. And so with Atlanta, they took on about the same amount of money as Chicago did with Omar Ashik, but they did it knowing that they weren't going to be doing much with the space they had for that year. And so most of the money that Crawford got was for the 17-18 season. He has actually has a little bit paid for next year too. Kudos to him. But that is a very different thing on July 7th than it is on July 1st and that it is on February 8th. So I think that a lot of teams wanted to maintain flexibility, even if that flexibility ends up not producing anything, because at least now they have the chance. That makes total sense. And so I'll give you an example if you want. Indiana. So like Indiana can go in a million different directions this offseason. And I have no idea if it's going to work for them because they could clear a bunch of space if they want to. They could just keep their guys around. And I think they were probably going into this because they, with the partial guarantees on all these guys that they have, they could have taken on some money and gotten something serious back if they wanted to. But I think they wanted to give this team a roll of the dice and just say, hey, let's see where this turns out. Yeah. And I think it's easier to do that when you've got monolithic teams in both conferences or you know a, a fair distance between yourself and, and the best teams i think that a team like indiana traditionally i think would have felt more pressure to do some to do some of the things you're talking about short term to just kind of owe it to their fan base but they're already playing with house money this year because they're exceeded expectations so much if they go out in the first round of the playoffs does anybody really care you know no one's going to look at that as a failed season and so i think contextually for a lot of the teams that to me in that kind of like clumped like four to eight range uh, in the east or, you know, the, the five to nine range in the west, 
they could all sort of sell themselves on basically that same premise. I guess the obvious exception would be New Orleans because they're under a little bit of a different kind of pressure. But I think that type of thinking that you're mentioning, uh, it's widespread across teams that don't view themselves as real contenders. The last point on that that is really important as we move into next year, and this has been relevant based on the moves that have already happened, is that a lot of the money that could be moved that for the especially the 2016 guys is on players that aren't particularly helpful. So it's really just a salary move. Timofey Mozgov is a great example of this. Luol Dang, if he ever gets moved. Myers Leonard. These aren't players that are a little bit overpaid. These are guys that you're treating as pretty close to dead money. And that's a lot harder to take than the Alan Crabb deal, where it's like, yeah, we like this guy. He's a little bit over, he's probably a little bit overpaid, but they got out of Nicholson in that. And there just aren't as many of those deals where you, where you have this sales pitch, whether that matters to the owner, the fan base, both. And that's going to, in certain circumstances, make it a lot harder for these trades to happen because the only case is the asset, the other assets. It's not that player himself. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, the list of those kinds of players that you mentioned, I mean, you could have just kept rattling off. Oh names. my God. <laughs> it just goes on forever. So Noah is, uh, Noah is at probably the top of that list, but he's real close to untradeable. So, I mean, the, I guess the closest maybe you could go with somebody like Nikola Batum, maybe, but he's paid for such a long time that that's scary for a whole different reason. Hey, by the way, did you see Magic Johnson's video talking about the uh, Luol Deng contract? Did you see, did you watch that video? I heard what he said and it was pretty no. amazing. But- stop, stop right there. After we end this podcast, go watch it. And I sit for every single one of your listeners, if you've only read the quote, watch the video. It is probably the funniest thing that's happened in the NBA in the 2017-18 season. Certainly if you're a salary cap nut like Danny and a lot of his listeners, uh, you will die laughing. You will you will laugh out loud at Magic's uh, response to Bill Orb's question about Luol Deng's contract and whether they got any interest in it. It was fantastic. Anything else you feel like we have to discuss that is an important part of this? Because I know you and I have plenty of other things we could. There is one last thing I think we should end on, Danny. I think it's Moutier. Don't you think he is maybe the ideal tank commander for the New York Knicks? I mean, isn't he ideally equipped to, to run this thing into the ground for them? I don't even know that they necessarily need one. I mean, they're they're pretty much just there anyway. But this it's that a, that, does, that does it's, get into it's, okay. It's tank insurance. <laughs> it, it gets into something that actually I did want to discuss. So the Knicks have twenty three wins right now. There are seven teams that have either seventeen or eighteen wins. So that's five wins below. I can totally buy the argument that the Knicks from here on out. So for 25 games are worse than all of those teams but are they so bad that they can (laughs) lose enough games to pass those teams is going to be truly fascinating because this is the final year before lottery reform comes in there are also too many teams so i think the brazenness this year is going to be off the charts and might in certain ways lead the league to being like see this is why we did it yeah, this is going to be a tankathon for the ages. There's no question. And to summarize what you just said, it is possible that the Knicks go 0 and 26 down the stretch. I believe that's how many games they have left, and still not have a top seven pick. Right, <laughs> they, they could be eighth because I think the Nets will pass them, and that might be it. So we should do an over under on like how many teams. Uh, get past you know 23 wins uh, of those teams that haven't done it yet I mean that should be a bet uh, that we all track to see you know exactly how hard New York can run this thing into the ground but I don't think the Knicks should win another game this season I think that should be their goal I know that's sacrilegious (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that's fantastic. They're on a five-game losing streak right now, Danny. I think they need to end on a 31-game losing streak. Whatever you have to do to make that happen, do it, New York. Fantastic. No better way to end this podcast. Thank you for the time, my friend. My pleasure, Danny. Take care. Thanks again to Ben Golliver for taking the time to come on. You can read him at Sports Illustrated. You can follow him on Twitter at Ben Golliver. That's B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. Love talking with him and his perspective on all of this. And and we're going to see where Cleveland goes. And I, I will encourage people, as I often do this time of year, to use an abundance of caution because, especially in Cleveland's case, the adjustment period can be as long as two months because the playoffs don't start until mid-April. And so, sure, it's better if they're if if they can gel faster than that, but their seeding doesn't matter a whole lot. And it takes a lot of time to incorporate new players, especially new players who are, as Ben brought up, in very different roles than the stuff that they're used to. And and Ty Lue and the rest of the Cavs are going to have to figure out how to fit all these pieces together. So watch it in the beginning because you never get another chance to do that. But also keep an eye on where this goes. And if you want my written thoughts particularly on Cleveland stuff, but actually I've done some on everything else too. You can check that out. A lot of that is at The Athletic. I wrote about the trades and the finances and all that kind of stuff for The Athletic Cleveland. And then I wrote a specific piece about how this all affects the Warriors and a potential NBA Finals matchup for The Athletic Bay Area. So you can check those all out. I have an author page as well. Also have a piece on the Lakers side of their big trade with the Cavs up at the Sporting News, so you can read that. And of course, Dunked On, Nate and I talked about all of these angles, and we'll do more in our 15 and 60, which will be coming out over the next couple of days, depending on when you listen to this. Still lots more going on. I am going to be in LA for All-Star. I don't know if I'm going to be doing any specific content related to that, but I will be down there. So still trying to figure out how I want to run Real GM Radio for that week, but I will have an episode because I always want to have an episode. I'll just, you'll know, you'll know what I know in terms of what that's going to be. And then the next week will be more normal because I'll come back midweek and do something later in the week. So lots to talk about, lots to focus on, and we'll see how the the new timeline, you know, with the trade deadline and everything else, how that affects the buyout market. We've already seen some guys get bought out and there's still almost three weeks left. And then as these teams gel, you know, final two months of the season, lots of movement still that needs to happen. Not much is really set other than the the identity of the top two teams, not the order. Both both conferences could switch around. So I'm going to really enjoy that. I hope you will too. You can follow my work, as I said, the Athletic Sporting News Real GM for writing, dunked on this Warriors Watch when I have the chance to do it. And if you want to support this show and pretty much any other show, but it's it's a great thing to do is leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player if you're choosing, but it's great if it's iTunes. They're still really important. So if you can do it there, that's much appreciated. You can also subscribe, download every episode that's particularly great with a show like this that doesn't always come out on the same day. So you never know when it's going to pop in for for you all on Sunday. Next week, it might be on Wednesday. That's just the way that this works. And I'm so thankful to Podcast One for being cool with that and for letting this show be what it is. And I'm I'm consistently proud of it and happy, happy to have the thankful to have the ability to do it. So you can check all that out. And We'll be back next week. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.
If you're struggling with alcohol or drugs, Recovery Centers of America can help. The holidays are over, the new year is here, and the time to act is now. Expert private care at Recovery Centers of America will get you on the road to recovery today. So call 1-888-RECOVERY-NOW. At our fully accredited, world-class treatment center in Monroeville, Pennsylvania, you will be treated with compassion, dignity, and respect by our dedicated team of professionals. You will also benefit from specialized programs, 24-hour medical care, and the comfort of our outstanding facilities. Let us help you. We will answer your call 24-7 and can get you into treatment as soon as today. If outpatient care is right for you, you can receive a same-day assessment and attend therapy in person or virtually. And because we accept most private insurance plans, you get premium care without the premium price. Don't wait. Start your new year. Start your new life today. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. That's 1-888-RECOVERY.